Because we're going to read John 2, verses 1 through 12. That'll get the stretch out of your knees anyway, so you... Bible's open. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. John chapter 2, picking it up with verse 1, verses 1 through 12, starting in John 1, uh, or verse 1, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Some of the best advice in the history of mankind right there. And it's from a mom, and it's about Jesus. Godly moms have been saying it ever since. Uh, Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. I'd like to carry these things. Uh, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have drunk well, the inferior you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Let's pray. Father, we just ask again the help of your spirit, the ministry of your spirit through your word. Uh, I need your help. Lord, remove me from the equation, once again, that these people, those online, those here, and even myself, Lord, we just hear from you. We just sit at your feet and grow in your grace. We just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word that it, it truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our past. And Lord, no matter how many times we've read this passage, we pray that it would be new and fresh to us here today, for you desire to do a new work daily in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know, have you ever, some of you growing up, they used to have these 3D movies. You guys remember the 3D movies? Um, you ever put on a pair of 3D glasses? I remember the first time I did. I, I, I didn't even know if they'd work. I don't know how old I was, but they were maroon or whatever. And you put them on, you're not even sure. And sure enough, you put them on, all of a sudden, you really do see a bunch of things. You look back up at the movie screen, you see these different layers and dimensions that come into focus. And things you didn't notice at first uh, they suddenly stand out. You should put them on, and there they are. And yet what you saw before those added dimensions is still there, right? It's still, even if you're just looking at one dimension, what you could see without is still there. It's just that the total picture is expanded now. With the 3D glasses, now you see additional things. And such is the case with the entirety of the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, you always have the plain meaning of everything, uh, you know, so if it says grapes, it means grapes. Uh, if, it's, if it's talking about a specific scene geographically, uh, it means that. But you have the clearly visible, and the clearly visible is always meant to be seen. But then you have, in the scriptures, additional depth. You guys would agree with that? There's additional depth to 
the text and, and how do we see the additional depth? Well, number one, other scriptures. Other scriptures help define so you, the, the lens of the totality. That's why Paul said, I've not, uh, I've not um, been remiss to teach you what the whole counsel of God, because the whole of scriptures helps reveal the additional things that we would normally see. Another, another thing is di diligent study. You actually have to study the Word of God, study to show yourself approved unto God. Uh, the work of faithful pastors and teachers down through the ages. So if you read something from C.S. Lewis or Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody, di different men of God that God used, their study helps us. Uh, we all read books and say, wow, that, that was a really good insight. Why didn't I see that? Well, the reason why a lot of times we didn't see it is the last piece and the most important piece, the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will show things, and the more you marinate in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will continue to kind of like uh, show you a little more depth. And so, uh, and, and he'll keep you from things that aren't true, too, because sometimes you'll hear someone teach something, that doesn't really sound right. You know, you, you look at it and you're like, no, that's a false teaching, or that, that's not false, but it's really not of the Lord. And so um, these additional layers, though, the Lord wants us to see. And the text before us this morning is a prime example of where the primary meaning and the intention is front and center. And what is that? Well, the primary front and center we see is Jesus, again, his divinity. He's just launched his ministry. Front and center is that Jesus is divine. Uh, we see his anointing here. We see his ministry through signs and miracles, because this is going to be the very first miracle that he has performed in his earthly ministry. But all of this speaks to his divinity, his power. But while the miraculous here further confirms who Jesus is in the world, so uh, that Jesus himself said that the signs that he would perform are part of the witness of God, part of the evidence. So while these things do further confirm who Jesus is, the setting, the backdrop, the stone pots, Mary, the disciples there, uh, the, the wedding itself, these other background pieces, which are not just background pieces, God has placed them all perfectly there, right? Uh, it tells us more of the Father's unfolding plan uh, and the heart of Christ. So what, uh, every time you see a scene with Jesus, not only what he says, but what's going on around is all part of the larger picture. And so the more, you know, we, could, we could spend the rest of the day here and we could continue to peel back things. We don't have that kind of time, but let's take a look at some things this morning. So picking up with where we left off at the end of chapter one, we see this is now the third day. It says in verse one, on the third day, there was a wedding in, the, in Cana of Galilee. This is the third day of what John the Apostle had recorded in Jesus's public ministry, uh, beginning with his leading um, and teaching the disciples. So he has now selected a few disciples. He's beginning to lead them now. He, they're following him up here to Cana. And we observe, um, also we observe here, the reason why Jesus wanted to go to Cana. Uh, we know he was headed there. We see the reason, uh, specifically, he arrives with several of his new disciples. And of course, he's there for a wedding. We know why he was going there. Uh, it's the plan of the Father that Jesus be at this wedding. How do we know it's the Father's plan that Jesus be at this wedding? Well, Jesus himself says in John 8, 29, I always do those things that please him. So anywhere Jesus goes, anything Jesus does, the Father's will is driving him, not driving him, but 
leading him in that direction. So it's the Jesus that I do those things that the Father has sent me to do, always those things that please him. So Jesus is there according to the will of the Father. Let's turn our attention back to verse 1. So we see again, he is in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus, the mother of Jesus is there. Uh, Cana is the same city where Nathaniel is from. We just saw in the previous chapter, uh, Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, and uh, so Nathaniel was from Cana. And not only is he able to go to uh, Nathaniel's hometown, but obviously this wedding is very important. Uh, if you don't know where Cana is, I've got a map up here where you can kind of see it. Uh, last couple of weeks I've mentioned some cities. I want to just put a map up there, so I'm not just mentioning them and uh, having you to imagine. But Cana is just due west of the Sea of Galilee. It's in the Galilean region. I've got it circled in red. Can you guys see that little tiny red circle there? It's the only one that uh, is not part of the original map. And directly due west and Nazareth to the south, uh, where Jesus spent most of his... Uh, remember, he was in Egypt as a child, then Nazareth, where he grew up the rest of his uh, time. And then he spends Jesus spends the majority of his ministry up here in the northern part of Galilee, Capernaum area, uh, where the Mount of Beatitudes is up in that area. But um, So Cana is in Galilee. Jesus has come from being down where he was baptized in this area, in the lower, uh, lower Jordan Valley, somewhere in that area, uh, Bethabara area down there. And but just gives you a reference point of where Jesus come up from Judea. Now he's in Cana of Galilee. Uh, now when the Father um, came upon Jesus at the baptism there in the Jordan, it was at that point that Jesus was anointed for ministry because Jesus was not anointed with oil like Samuel did for David. That kings and high priests and prophets were anointed with oil. But Jesus was greater than all the prophets, so he had to be anointed by God himself, so the dove serves as his anointing. The dove comes down. Jesus was anointed uh, not by oil, like kings and priests are, but by the Holy Spirit himself. And at that point, Jesus was then fitted for the ministry. The Father had fitted him to go forth as the Messiah, which is the very first thing the disciples recognized. Remember back in chapter 2, they said, we have found the Messiah. John said, John kept saying, behold the Lamb of God, but they kept saying, we found the Messiah. So the, the Jewish person at that time, they were not looking for a Lamb of God. John keeps saying that, and it might have even gone over their heads to some degree. We talked about they understand the blood sacrifice element, but they kept saying, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah, which means anointed or Christ. They, they're the exact same uh, meaning. So... Uh, now, when the disciples see him as the Messiah, uh, the one who's going to rule and reign over Israel, and they really were looking for this, this new ruler, um, we, we, at that point, Jesus has not done any miracles. He does show a little bit of, a little bit, more than many of us we could ever do, but he shows some of his omniscience when he says to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, but it's not a miracle yet. He has told him something that only Jesus would have known, but they, they had seen prophets do some of those same things, but this is the first time as this scene enters uh, that he'll actually perform a miracle. So he hasn't done any yet, uh, but that's about to change. Just a little background on the scene here. Uh, as Jesus approaches this wedding, as he approaches Cana, and he comes specifically to go to this wedding, uh, he's invited, disciples are invited, but as best we can tell, He's coming there with the full intent to attend it as a celebration. 
God loves marriage. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But he's coming to celebrate the marriage. I mean, most of the time, unless it's a shotgun wedding, everyone's coming for a good reason. They want to celebrate. There, there is going to be rejoicing. Uh, ladies love weddings even more than men, I think. Um, you know, because I have observed men at weddings doing this uh, many a time. You know that. But they generally like the part after more than the actual ceremony or something, you know, but if it gets too long and, and men don't ever seem to need to bring the tissues and all that other stuff, uh, they're like, why are you crying at this? This isn't even your wedding, you know. <laughs> you're, you don't even know these people that well and you're crying. You know, I don't, I don't get, well, it's just so sweet, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, women have a heart for weddings. But God has a heart for weddings, and Jesus has a heart for weddings. And, uh, but he was there to celebrate. And weddings were a big deal to the ancient Jewish culture uh, and context. And the weddings could last up to a week. I was telling the first service, I wish Christmas was a week. I actually like the Christmas season. I'm not, I, I really enjoy it. I, I know it's all about Jesus, and yet I enjoy some of the Disney ones, some of this, that, and the other. But ultimately, you know, I think the Jewish people get festivals right. They're multi-day. You know, we, uh, Fourth of July, it's over in a day, and fireworks are like 12 minutes at max, and it's over, and then you're like, everybody back to work the next day. But they would have a wedding, and it could last up to a week. The Hebrew uh, word for wedding is simcha. Uh, it means joyous occasion. So the Jewish word for wedding literally means joyous occasion. So anytime they would think wedding, it was synonymous from the time you were a kid. It meant joyous occasion. Who wouldn't want a joyous occasion? I mean, that's what we, we, we don't like miserable occasions, but a joyous occasion. And the marriage ceremony and wedding, they were actually the final pieces of the Jewish wedding. It had, it had three parts. Some of you are probably familiar with this. And, you know, Mary and Joseph, for example, they were in that betrothal phase when they had yet to have relations as husband and wife. But you have the three phases of the Jewish wedding. And you start with this mutual commitment. And so there had to be a mutual commitment. And then you have this betrothal period, this, the, the exchanging of a, a little bit of cups of wine there. And then you finally have the marriage ceremony itself, and the consummation of the marriage, which is all on the same night. So this ma marriage ceremony. But the whole thing, again, the whole process of the marriage can, is, is much longer than a week. You're, you're talking months. But then the actual wedding night, there is the wedding, there is the party, there is the celebration, and then there is the husband and wife uh, coming together. So you have these three parts. Jesus is here to enjoy the invite-only celebration, the third part. He is here for this third part, the invite-only celebration. And it's highly likely, and in fact it's probable, that the wedding here is either a relative of Jesus, Mary, or the disciples, or at least a close family friend. Uh, uh, all of them were from the Galilean region. Uh, it's been proposed by numerous scholars, we don't know for certain, it's been proposed by some scholars, that one of the disciples got married. It's, and that's possible. Peter for himself, you know, obviously Peter uh, is married. We know that from Scripture. Uh, it's possible that other disciples uh, could have been uh, married here. We don't know. Some have even proposed John himself, who's the author who doesn't ever name himself. Uh, but what we do know is that in addition to the Jewish excitement and connection to weddings uh, and the wedding ceremony, here's what we know for certain. As much as the Jewish people loved weddings, God gave weddings because God gave marriage. Amen? God ordained marriage, 
in the Garden of Eden, the first human relationship that God put together was what? One man and one woman. And it tells us in uh, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it, it's, it's such an awesome thing when marriages, we just our marriage night uh, not too long ago, we had the marriage night, we had 30 couples here, and we're going to do another one in the, in the first quarter of the year. But when people grow as one, God, God wants husband and wife to become unified in the power of the Lord. And, the, and, the, and it was never God's intention that sin would des- destroy all of that. He put them together before had sin had entered, if you recall. I mean, they, uh, they were put together. God actually performed the marriage. God is the one that ordained marriage. And it's why Satan hates and attacks marriage. All the way from the beginning, Satan has hated and attacked marriage, and hence we have many divorces, we have people that won't get married, they want to live together forever, we have people that just want to have multiple partners, we have people that think any other form of relationships constitutes a marriage, and so, um, but it, it doesn't. God says one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's what marriage is. It's none of the other things that people want to call marriage that aren't marriages at all. So Jesus, here at the outset of his ministry, is given a confirmation of his desire that the blessed union of marriage which God had ordained, mankind returns to it. Or understands its sanctity, right? Because if Jesus is there, he's sanctifying everything. Wherever he goes, he's saying, oh, my father. You know, these aren't things he's saying. I'm saying this is the background that we kind of see things. Why is Jesus creating why is the first place of his miracle at a wedding? Because the very first relationship on earth was a marriage. And Jesus is there to say, this, I want to restore this, what has been damaged by sin, that what God, estab- what God established. Additionally, we understand the fact that uh, Jesus and the church is this bride and bridegroom relationship as well. So we understand, and we wouldn't... People wouldn't have known that then. We now know it now after the epistles are written and the book of Revelation is written and we see the marriage supper of the Lamb and we understand in hindsight, oh, no wonder Jesus was at a wedding. Our whole relationship, we're the bride and he's the groom. And so his church being the bride, we also see in focus here as Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding, he will someday preside over his own wedding feast. He will preside over the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven when he gathers all the saints to himself. And and if you notice in the text, this was an invite-only wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be invite-only too. Invite-only. Who who receives that invite? Well, only those that have been saved and born again and filled with the the Holy Spirit and, and actually have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So the marriage supper of the Lamb that day will be invite only as well. But in all this, let's see how Jesus handles what we see front and center. And that's what takes place with this whole running out of wine and how Mary's involved and the servants and the demonstration of his power. We're taking us, the first thing we'll take a look at, uh, crisis revealed. Um, Jesus goes there. He knows there's going to be a crisis. No one else knows this. But everything apparently is going well back in verse 1 and 2. Let's take a look again on the third day. Jesus is uh, was there at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Everything apparently is going well. 
when Jesus' mother Mary notices a serious problem. We're not sure if Mary is the first one to see it or notice it, other than Jesus knows it, because he knows everything. Right? He, she's not really informing him of anything. Uh, he knows it. But moms do have a radar for things, don't they? Uh, of, of potential things that are going wrong, or, you know, because uh, you get, uh, you know, the, the dad has a remote in his hand, and he can tell you what's happening in the game, but the house could burn down around and not even know what is going on. But, uh, but moms have a radar about not only issues, but even potential issues, kind of seeing the whole thing uh, there. And, just, and, and also, more, you know, the, the men, you know, the disciples, they're probably chatting it up and have no clue uh, where even the wine is stored or anything like that. But uh, this potential issue is a big one in the Jewish culture, the financial responsibility of ancient Jewish weddings was always on the groom in the family. In America, the financial responsibility for the wedding is on the bride. Now, me as a dad of three girls, <laughs> I really like the Jewish construct. <laughs> and I want to get the church back to this. I don't know who my daughters will marry someday, but I'm a big fan of the ancient way that the grooms were responsible for the wedding, not the bride. I don't know who, who in America got it backwards. Uh, but to run out of wine was a real embarrassment to the groom and the immediate family. To run out of wine would cause the young couple uh, to be very uncomfortable in the community. It was as if they had not properly planned and accounted for their guest. It would be looked at as irresponsible, that they had no pre-planning on what would be needed. And it would cast doubt on their reliability as a couple because in the Jewish context, they realized coming together, they were now a team. So now people are like, this is not a good team. It was also considered, it was very normal throughout the Jewish construct there, it was considered a foreshadow that this would be a bad marriage. If you ran out of something important at the wedding, they would, that's going to be a bad marriage. In our culture, to be embarrassed about running out of something, say, again, you, say you had a wedding, a 250-plate wedding, and you somehow, poor plan, or the caterer didn't show up with the right amount, or somehow 50 people don't get anything, you're going to get lit up on social media, someone's going to post a, a picture of it on Facebook, I can't believe I got a wedding, you know, then people are going to complain, all that. but it's probably not going to cost you in life, other than a few days. Americans can't even remember what happened in yesterday's news, much less uh, so. But in this culture, this would stick, that this wedding was kind of cursed, and so it was not a good thing at all, and it was looked at uh, as, as really troubling uh, to their life. And, uh, but... It's one of these things that um, in our culture, it doesn't create an ongoing crisis, uh, but this is a crisis that will become a bigger crisis in this young couple's life. And now it appears that nobody is aware of this except the servants and Mary. And when Mary sees what will ensue, I, mean, she must have, I don't know if she tells the servants, don't say a word, I think I know a plan. Because if, if they're first going to go and run, say, we're out of, you know, zip it. This all moms are good at this, too. <laughs> Don't say anything yet. I can fix this. All right, so, so she, she's aware and understand. Uh, one, 
understand something about wine, too, in the ancient culture. We'll come back to Mary in just a second. But uh, a lot of people, when they read this text, they might, uh, you know, pastors in t- certain times try, try to make it grape juice. It was wine. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely wine. But there's things to understand about wine then uh, as compared to now. It was wine, uh, but wa- uh, the wine in the ancient times... Uh, it's not like today. The alcohol content was much less. And the reason why it was diluted, uh, wine was diluted with water at that time to the tune of about one-third to one-tenth diluted. Um, wine was expensive, and water was hard to find water that didn't sometimes have some contamination and bad for the stomach. So the little bit of alcohol helped to clean the water and kill the contaminants. So it was very normal when we say table water or you say table wine, they would dilute the wine to a great extent, so it would be much less, you could actually drink it just like water, and yet it did have alcohol in it, which was killing things, and so it was much safer. Uh, but you could quench your thirst with it and not get intoxicated. The lack of water purification uh, also made table wine kind of like our waiter will come to you and keep refilling your outback and the carafe of water and keeps filling it up it would be on, on the same kind of line of thinking. Um, but wine still had to be, depending on the occasion, had to be better quality, had to be flavorful. Some were better than others. Uh, I, I, like, I like flavored seltzer water, uh, which I might have, might have hated as a kid. But now at 51, I like it. But at some brands, I tell them, no, no, that one tastes like pine salt. It does not taste like lemons. I don't care what they say. Uh, it does not taste like lemons. It tastes like something else. And so some are better than others. And in the, here, at this, here at this wedding, the quality mattered. In all weddings, the quality mattered. But uh, the other thing to understand is the drunkenness. Um, there wouldn't, Jesus would not have attended a drunken party. There's not an issue of drunkenness. One reason why is in the Jewish culture, it was looked down upon to be drunk. In the law, it was a sin to be drunk. So you have people that really are faithful Hebrew Jewish people. Culturally, it looked bad to be drunk. In American culture, no one, it does not look bad to be drunk. You're actually glamorized on TV for being drunk, whereas in that culture, if you look drunk, you look like some irresponsible loon, that nobody was, you would be a social pariah to be drunk. So this was not a drunken condition uh, at this wedding. But at any rate, here in Cana, the wine is gone, and everyone's soon going to know about it, and lives are going to be impacted. But Mary knows exactly what she'll do. She goes and finds Jesus. And whenever you're unsure of what you need to do, you need to go and find Jesus. The good news is you don't have to go find him. If you're saved, he lives in you. He's a prayer away. But a lot of times we actually will wrestle with problems for two or three hours before we go, oh, maybe I should pray about this. You ever do that? I like Mary doesn't, she doesn't waste any time. She goes straight to Jesus. And who can blame her? Because he's the one that has all the answers. Um, uh, if you're taking notes, let's take a look at point number two here, a concerned request. Mary comes to Jesus. She goes to Jesus. And look at what she says. Uh, they have no wine. And notice Jesus' response to her. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, she doesn't ask Jesus to do anything specific. She simply informs him of the problem. But make no mistake, she is requesting his help. Uh, My wife um, can make a request of me or our girls in the form of a statement 
without asking a question. I, here's one. Some of you men will relate to this one. I might get this statement. The trash is full. <laughs> I didn't hear a question. I hear a fact. I hear a statement. I don't hear a question, but I do hear a question. Can you take it out? Is the, is the underlying question to the soft statement. Trash is full. So um, that's a really gracious way of my wife pointing out something that I should have done. But in the case of Jesus, there's nothing that he should have done or he shouldn't have done uh, that he somehow overlooked. Uh, he's aware of everything. He sees the bigger picture. Now Mary's request, though, it's really a testament to her compassion for this couple and the people that are there but also her faith in Jesus. She knows that he can actually fix this. He can solve the problem. Her request tells us that she does not want to see this young couple negatively harmed by running out of wine. I love people that care about other people. The reason why we're caring about kids in Syria that we've never met is because God cares about them. The reason why we care about these other pastors that you don't know is because God cares about their struggle. God knows how much tears they'll shed in the month of December battling cancer. God cares about the thing. So if God cares, we want to care. And Mary knows that God cares about this couple. She's going to care about this couple. So what she's really doing by coming to Jesus, the testament of her compassion and faith, is, and, her, and when she makes this request, uh, it's her interceding. She's interceding. This, this is the equivalent to us going in prayer and saying, Lord, I'm praying for that couple or that family or that situation. And this is precisely what she does. She believes in Jesus, not as her son here, but as the one who has the capability to intervene in any situation. Any situation. She's probably wanted to use his, come to him for power before, but, but she now knows he's been anointed post the baptism there in the Jordan. She now knows his ministry is in full flight now. So she's coming right to him, and she sees that he has no limits. She believes he has no limits. Do you believe Jesus has no limits? Are you trusting in other things? Are you trusting in your bank account or the CDC or the federal government or the new president or the old president or who's president? I don't know. But uh, all of this stuff, what are you trusting in? But in all this, um, Jesus has yet to perform any miracles. She's asking him to do something. He's not performed any miracles yet. Of course, we don't know exactly what she thought he could do or how she thought he might handle it, but she just knows he could handle it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that's all you need to know about the Lord. You just need to know he can handle it. Amen. Do we have that faith? Do we believe that God can handle and cares about the things that are coming into your life and coming into my life? Now, Jesus' answer isn't exactly what you might expect. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Doesn't sound like the most, on, on the face of it, doesn't sound like the most compassionate answer. But understand, uh, as he answers this, he doesn't say mother, he says woman. It's actually a term of respect. He uses the same term on the cross when he says woman, your son John, when he basically says, John is now your son, John, you're now going to care for her as if she's your mother. I'm putting you in charge. So he was not. He said that from the cross with eyes of compassion. It's, it's like me and I, you, it'd be like me being a, doing a hospital visit and me saying, someone I just grabbed the lady's hand and said, ma'am, I can't call her mother. Jesus, it's a term of respect. He's speaking respectfully, but it, he's saying, it's like ma'am or mother, 
uh, mother, but ma'am or madam. Uh, and yet he clearly, inter- he clearly tells us here with the way he answers, he indicates that his ministry now supersedes the family dynamics. The ministry now supersedes the family dynamics. And, and as a pastor, some of, the things, some of the things God calls me to will supersede the family dynamics. It doesn't replace the fact that I have family dynamics, but certain things. And, but Jesus knows he'll now be standing alone in the will of the Father, not what the family wants him to do. It's going to be what the Father wants him to do, not what anyone else in the family wants. And sometimes, by the way, your family won't understand some of the things God wants you to do. Right. Do you know that? Sometimes your family won't understand. But you have to stand on what you know the Lord is telling. But I get the sense, and other scholars do as well, um, not that I'm a scholar, but I'm saying that the scholars that have studied this, I get the sense uh, when I was reading this and I wanted to look to see did, did others kind of feel the same way, and sure enough I found others do, I get the sense that Mary um, had more in mind for Jesus to do than just fixing this problem. Because she, he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me. My hour, my hour has not yet come. Uh, by the way, they've known each other 30 years now. He knows her really well, and she kind of knows him somewhat too, but it seems to me that she has something else in mind. She does want the primary uh, thing solved, which is the out of wine, but as he uh, interacts with her, maybe, just maybe, she's hoping that Jesus will reveal his glory and vindicate her at some level. It's possible, and scholars have, have, have thought about this, because there's a lot going on in him just saying, ma'am, what does your concern have to do with me? Maybe Mary was like, this is it. He's been anointed. He's been baptized. Now I'll be vindicated, because I've been telling people for years, I had a virgin birth, and they think I'm a fraud. But if he does something miraculous, I told y'all I was right. You know, that kind of, you know, uh, haven't I been saying this and whatever it may be? Or maybe she just wants to see Jesus unveil his power. Maybe she's been longing for it for 30 years. But at any rate, Jesus is not going to do to the full extent what she may want. She seems to infer from his response when he says, my hour has not yet come, that he'll not be doing all that she hoped he'd do, but he's willing to do what must be done. And sometimes in our prayer life, this happens, where God says, I'm not going to do everything you asked for because it's not time yet. But the primary need he will meet, and the problem that needs to be solved at hand, Jesus is certainly about to solve it. And her advice to the servant still applies to us, as we saw in the text. Whatever he says, do, do it. And let's look at Jesus' response, our final point this morning. Uh, Christ with power. So we look at this final uh, point this morning. Jesus, uh, here's her request. Uh, he's not going to do maybe some of the things. That, and and if, if Mary has other things in mind, we'll find out when we get to heaven. What were the other things you wanted him to do? And, you know, she'll be glad to tell you. Uh, and Jesus will be glad to tell you. And here's why I was not going to do that at the moment, but I would do the primary need related to the wine in this couple. But uh, Jesus sees six stone water pots there. Uh, these were water pots that were used for the ceremonial Jewish washing. You know, every time you see Jesus come into place, they had to wash the hands and the feet and things like that. But stone, by the way, was more impervious to uh, contamination than clay pots. So they're not clay, they're actual stone. So not only are they a lot of gallons of water, they're stone on top of that. Um, and Jesus tells the servants to fill them up to the brim. And I find it interesting that six is the number of man. There's six pots here, and six is the number of man. 
and man was created on the sixth day. And, and as Christians, we're called to pour into people, but we can't change them. Amen? Whether they're saved already or not saved. I, I, my wife is saved. I can pour into her, but only Christ can do what she needs. And in your own relationship, you can pour into people, but only Christ can change them. You can pour into the lost and dying world, which we want to do, but only Jesus can change on the inside. Amen. The other thing that's kind of interesting here is they go do this. It says, if you look in the text, uh, pick it up with verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up the bread. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Nothing is said by Jesus until he tells the servant to take the cup and to dip it. They have no idea that the water has turned into wine. We don't see any Jesus point to the cup. We don't see him point to the uh, pots and say, now become wine. He says nothing. He just says, fill them up. And when they go to dip them, it's become wine, but there's no verbal command from Jesus for the water to become wine. And this is like the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody sees it happen. It just God does it. All of a sudden, God does this inward work. And, and we can't see it. Jesus says it's like the Spirit blows. When we get to John chapter 3. It, you, don't, you can't tell where it's coming from. And so God just does this inward work. This is the first of eight miracles that John identifies in his gospel, each demonstrating his deity and his power. And only the Creator can change something into something else or make something out of nothing. Jesus spoke the universe into existence. He can definitely tell water to become wine. Amen? I'm still amazed all these years later uh, that God does this constantly. When you drink Welch's grape juice, or if you have a glass of wine or something, literally it came down as rain, goes into dirt, and comes out as a grape. It blows my mind. I mean, I still think it's, I, I know we take these things for granted, but when the cow drink, eats the green grass and out comes white milk, I mean, uh, all these kind of things that God does, we just take them all for granted, but, but it's just one trillionth of the intellect of God and his power. But Jesus is the creator. He is the savior, but he's also the creator. G. Campbell Morgan said, it was a sign of power in the realm of creation, speaking of this miracle, G. Campbell Morgan is speaking of this miracle here, and of it being exercised in answer to faith, and that was the faith of Mary. Mary's like, Lord, we need your help. And Jesus says, I'll do it. He doesn't tell him how he does it. He doesn't even tell him when he did it. It just happened, that work of the Spirit. Mary asked by faith for help, and Jesus showed that he has no limitations to his power. But we also see here the picture of his mission to redeem and to transform inside out. Where do we, how do we see that picture? Well, Moses' first miracle, Moses turned water into blood. How'd you like to drink that? That's what the Egyptians, they go to, remember they, they go to turn on the faucet and they got blood. Moses turned water into blood. Um, that was a picture of judgment. It was a picture of the law. And the wrath of God would be poured out on Jesus on the cross, and his blood would be shed because of the wrath of our sins, which was the wrath of God was poured out on him. But Moses' first miracle, turning that water 
into blood, Jesus turning this water into wine. This shows us the grace that God makes. The grace of God is now ushered in instead of just the law. The grace of God is now ushering in. Jesus wants to make the reconciliation, to, be, to bring reconciliation, to bring the peace and restored relationship. Jesus proclaims grace, turning something of water into the sweetness of this wine. And, and Jesus is still doing this in lives. Look at verse 10 as we come to a close here. Uh, he says in verse 10, Every man uh, at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have drunk well, but uh, the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, part of this is a picture of Jesus is the good wine that's been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and now it is here. But the other thing is a picture of what he does in us. He's still doing this. I know many adults who are far sweeter, far kinder, more humble now since Jesus changed them on the inside than when they were unsaved, when they were 20, 30, 40, 50. I've seen 60-year-olds change radically and become sweeter on the inside because Jesus can do that at any time. So not only is he the fulfillment of this, but he's fulfilling it in us. And, and uh, as we wrap it up in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it tells us this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Jesus wants to do that inward work in us, just like these stone pots, that new creation, that inward work of becoming new. And I, my question as we close is, has he replaced the dirty water of sin in your life or the religious works of water, you know, the religious water type the purification works that really can't purify us with the sweetness of his supernatural newness. That's what we need. Amen? We need that sweetness of his supernatural newness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we just bow before you. We thank you. Uh, Lord, there is so much depth to your word. And Lord, I've barely scratched the tip of the iceberg here. But Lord, there's more than enough to see that we need to bring our cares to you. We need to have faith that you can do all things. We need to know that you have saving power but creative power. We need to, Lord, desire the sweetness of the new wine you want to do in our life. Even those of us know, Lord, Lord, there's new wine that you want to bring forth in our life. Fresh. All things becoming new. And with our heads bowed, before we just close in worship, I just want to speak to anyone online or anyone here I know that this message is, is primarily to believers and us to, just to see the beauty of these things. But if there's anyone here at all, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's anyone at all that the Holy Spirit spoke to you. Again, I, as I mentioned, Jesus says nothing, and the water becomes wine. It's a work of the Spirit. If God were to save someone in today's service, it would definitely be the work of the Spirit. I've, I, the gospel's been in it, but it hasn't been a gospel-specific message. It's been really a focus on what took place here. But I don't want to miss the fact that the Holy Spirit may have spoken to someone that needs that redemption. Anyone at all that say, hey, that's me. I, I came here today, and I don't know why I'm here, but I want to give my life to Christ. Or maybe you're online. And I'm just going to say a prayer, and if that's you, just pray with me. And if you do uh, mean this in your heart, God will save you even today. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for 
living a sinless life. Thank you for proclaiming the gospel. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. And I ask you to wash me and cleanse me and write my name in the Lamb's book of life for I'm deciding this day to follow you, Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Seal me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I'm desiring now to learn from you and to be your disciple from this day forward. In your name I pray. Amen.